morning, everybody. All right, so um, I'm going to say something that's very obvious, uh, and many people have said this already, but I'm not Pastor Dio. Um, if you look very closely, I, I, I didn't shave my chin hair, so I looked a little bit like him, but, uh, but I am not, and we're so thankful that he's going to be back soon uh, next week. Um, but I have the distinct privilege of, of sharing God's word today with you all, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. So um, let me just pray for us real quick, and then, and then we'll get started. Um, uh, Father, um, thank you um, that we're here have a specific reason for all of us to be here today, um, and Lord, I, I pray, God, that uh, not my words, not my um, thinking or ideas, but God, it's, it's all you, Lord, um, and we leave here today, um, let, let us just remember uh, the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ, um, and God, that, uh, that, we, that we are moved by your Spirit, so Holy Spirit, come, do the work that uh, no man can do on their own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, in 1994, there was a movie uh, that came out, and it's called uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Okay, so now I realize as an intergenerational congregation, there are people in this audience that were not born in 1994. So uh, don't have to raise your hand if you're that person. But uh, what I will say is that this, uh, since 1994, um, and even today, Shawshank Redemption is known as one of the greatest movies of all time greatest movies of all time. Some people may agree, some may disagree, but if you go on to, if you go on your phone later, not right now, but uh, if you go on to IMDb, it is rated as a 9.3 star movie, okay, 9.3 out of 10. Uh, that is above The Godfather, okay? Um, I don't recommend you watch The Godfather, but I do recommend you watch this movie. Um, I think it's PG-13, so if you're not 13, don't watch it. Uh, if it's rated R, I don't remember if you're not 17, don't watch it either. Uh, I don't want your parents coming to me and uh, getting mad at me about watching movies you shouldn't be watching. But that being said, it's known as one of the greatest movies of all time. And uh, I'll give you a quick uh, synopsis of the story. Uh, Tim Robbins plays a character of Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne is a wealthy banker that is uh, wrongly accused and wrongly convicted of murder. Um, and then there is uh, a gentleman by the name of Red who is played by Morgan Freeman. Um, and he is also in prison for, uh, not wrongly convicted, but he was rightly convicted, if you will, um, of murder um, when he was 17 years old. So um, there's this new guy coming into prison, and then there's this old guy that's been in prison for almost 40 years. Upon arrival, uh, this, you know, he, they, they kind of pick out, like, you know, oh, that guy's going to crack first, that guy's going to crack second. Red actually picks Andy to crack first, but to his surprise, Andy's resilience. So there's this tall, Caucasian, six foot five, um, string bean of a guy, um, and then there is uh, this shorter, um, African American, older gentleman, and this uh, amazing friendship starts to build throughout the course of the movie. Um, Andy does things that are out of character for any other inmate in Shawshank Prison, and so one of the things that he does um, is he wants to renovate the library in the prison, and he's committed to this. So he writes a letter every single day to the state of Pennsylvania, and at one point he steps it up to two letters per day um, to the state of Pennsylvania asking for money and resources to renovate the library. Uh, eventually the, the state is tired of receiving letters, so they send him a bunch of money and they send him a bunch of books. Within those books he finds a record um, of classical music. And then as he's sorting through some stuff, 
there's this moment of opportunity where he sees the re- he has the record in his hand. He looks over. There's a record player, um, and then beside the record player, there is the microphone that is the PA um, that feeds to all the speakers in the prison. Okay, so if you make announcements from this microphone, the entire prison hears you. So he looks at the mic, the record player, the record. He looks over the. The guard actually ended up going to the bathroom, so he goes over, locks the door to the bathroom, locks the door to the office, puts classical music on, and then he blasts it throughout the entire prison. Now, you have to remember, this is prison, okay? This is not elementary school. So to hear music in a prison is completely, completely out of the norm. And so what happens within a couple of seconds, the the guy who's locked in the bathroom, he's like, Andy, let me out. And then guards start running towards this room to turn off the music. Eventually, there are people banging on the door. They're saying, Andy, turn that music off. The, uh, the warden of the prison comes to that door, says, Andy, turn that music off, or you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And he turns towards them. He looks, makes eye contact. He smiles. And then he turns up the volume. <laughs> and then he sits down in a chair, puts his feet up on the desk, and listens to the music for probably another 20 to 30 seconds, which feels like an eternity, um, until the Guards break down the door, give him a beating of a lifetime, and then they throw him in solitary confinement um, for a couple of weeks. He gets out, and then there's this pivotal scene in the movie where they're sitting at lunch, and it's the first time he's out of solitary confinement, and they, and they ask him, they're like, hey, man, so was it worth it? You know, was it worth it, you know, taking that beating and sitting in the box for two weeks? And then more importantly, they ask him, why'd you do it, man? Like, why'd you do that? Why would you play music? And, and endure that uh, punishment. And he says, it helps me remember that there are places that aren't made of stone, meaning that there are places outside of prison, that there's something inside that they can't touch, that it's yours. And Red asks him, what are you talking about? Hope. And he says, so from there, the story takes several different turns. Uh, you know, Andy's financial background helps, him, helps the warden and the guards make a bunch of money, create this embezzlement scheme, essentially. And, um, but then also, in the course of that, new evidence comes to light that could help potentially prove Andy's innocence. Andy um, brings this to the warden, and what happens? The warden buries that information so that Andy can continue this, this money laundering scheme. And, and spoiler alert, long story short, Andy escapes from prison. And the, and, and the warden and all the guards and the people that covered up the information um, are brought to justice. And Andy actually uses some of that embezzlement money to start a new life. A new life, okay? Um, he creates this amazing scheme to get out of prison. And it's, 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 it's iconic with the moment that he steps foot outside of that prison and what that image looks like and him coming into freedom. So this is the Shawshank Redemption. This is the greatest movie of all time. Why is this the greatest movie of all time? And I think, very simply put, it's because uh, it is based on these two powerful ideas, the idea of hope and the idea of redemption, redemption and hope. So, uh, you know, I think the easier way to define that, or maybe the more common way to say that, is that I think everybody here wants to see the wrongs of the world made right, okay, that is what redemption is, and we all want to see a better tomorrow, that's what hope is, okay? The wrongs made right, and for things to get better. I think that's why this movie is so powerful. And so we see examples of that today um, in our world. 
right? So a couple of current events, we had this thing called the, uh, the Me Too movement, right? And if you haven't heard of that, um, where women are coming out and they're starting to um, voice experiences that, that they've had in the workplace where they've been sexually harassed, okay? And, you know, people are catching on to this because this has been going on for a really long time. And, 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 you know, women have been treated in the workplace in a certain way, and nobody's talked about it, but now it's coming out, and people, courageous people are stepping out in the droves to make sure that, again, the wrongs are made right. Uh, this is particularly important to me because I, um, I'm, a, I'm a father, um, I have a daughter, and I, and I would hope that one day when she enters the workplace that uh, she would, Grace would never have to experience that type of behavior or that type of work environment. Um, in addition to that, um, I, I, I actually happen to work in HR, so I'm the one who deals with uh, these, these sexual harassment complaints. So um, another current event uh, is that, uh, you know, or just, you know, from a political standpoint, I won't get into too much political stuff, but if you're a liberal, right, um, you want to see social justice, you want to see a level playing field, you want um, people that have a lot to share with those who don't have a lot and to make sure that there's equity in the society. But if you're conservative, you will believe in a system of hard work and you want to give people the tools to help them get out of this perpetual cycle and not just give handouts, right? These are things that we see whether you're a liberal or conservative, whether you're a father or your or, or, or your father or a husband, you see that there's this desire to see the rights or the wrongs become right and a hope for a better tomorrow. So this morning I want to talk about these two these two ideas um, through the lens of uh, scripture and the story of Joseph. Okay, so uh, we're not going to look at one particular scripture today. We're going to look at several. Um, but overall, the story spans over uh, Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. Okay? Um, if we read all of that, we'd probably be here until tomorrow. And I will confess to you all, when I was preparing for this message, um, I did not read 13 chapters consecutively. I actually broke it up. Um, these are not just like New Testament chapters. These are like Old Testament chapters that are like really long. So 13 Old Testament chapters. Um, so if you choose to read this after um, today's message, don't feel bad if you, if you can't do it in one sitting. Totally get it. Um, I, I, I didn't either. Okay, so I'll do a quick flyover and then we'll get into the points. Um, so Jacob is one of the forefathers of the patriarchs of the Bible. Okay, so Abraham was the first. He's like the, the father of the Christian faith. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac then has a son named Jacob. Uh, Jacob has uh, you know, a checkered past, right? so he's known for deceiving his father into giving him the inheritance or the birthright of that family, um, steals it away from his older brother, Esau, and then he runs away. Um, and then ironically enough, Jacob is then deceived by another man into marrying uh, two of his daughters, one that he loves, his, uh, her name is Rachel, and the other's name is Leah. So I, I don't know how somebody gets tricked into marrying the wrong person, but um, long story short, um, Jacob is then deceived. So Jacob then has two wives. Okay, so Jacob has Leah, and then he has Rachel. Jacob has a son with Rachel by the name of Joseph, who is uh, the, the character that we're going to talk about today. So Joseph, uh, the scripture clearly states that Joseph is the favorite son um, of all of Jacob's sons, and it's no secret, and Jacob makes it no secret. He, he, among other things, he makes it no secret by giving him this, this, this uh, coat of many colors, okay? This coat of many colors. So not only is it well known, now it's being paraded around the house that Joseph is the favorite son. 
Um, and then in addition to that, Joseph has these, these bizarre dreams where he sees things that he prophesies that his family is going to bow down to him. Okay, so imagine you're a brother. You already don't like your brother. And then your brother says, hey, man, you're going to bow down to me one day. <laughs> Got it. So, uh, so that pours gasoline on the fire. One day Joseph is sent out by his dad to go check on his brothers, which kind of means like go snitch on, snitch on them and see if they're doing anything wrong. He goes out there. They see him from far away. They're like, let's kill this dude. Um, instead of killing him, they decide to sell him into slavery uh, to merchants that are walking by. So basically overnight, Joseph goes from being favorite son, probably going to get everything in the family, to being a slave sold to Egypt. Uh, slave sold going to Egypt. Um, he gets to Egypt. Uh, he is uh, sold to Potiphar, um, who is a government official and a captain of the guard to, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And... <clears throat> And so he goes, to, he goes to Potiphar's house, and he starts to rise in responsibility. God is with him um, through this time. Okay? In Genesis 39, 2 and 3, two phrases, the Lord was with him. And then um, it also says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So as a result, uh, Joseph starts to rise in the ranks. And uh, you know, to, to use a restaurant analogy, you know, he started as, as a dishwasher. You know, he moved up to Fry Station. He started flipping burgers, and then he moved up to cash register, and then he becomes a general manager of Potiphar's house. Okay, he's a general manager of Potiphar's house. So um, Potiphar's wife then takes notice of him, and um, he's, he's, the scripture says he's a good-looking dude. Um, and then she makes a pass at him, um, propositions him, and he rejects her. She flips it around on him and wrongly accuses him, saying that he tried to make a pass at her, and so Potiphar throws him in jail. In jail, he meets, um, so again, he, he goes from the top, being the GM of Potiphar's house, now he's back in jail, back down at the bottom. Goes to jail, he, hap- he meets a bunch of people, and among those people, he meets um, a cupbearer, um, and the cupbearer has this bizarre dream. So jo- Joseph's got this gift of interpreting dreams, and so he tells the cupbearer, hey, this dream actually means you're going to be restored to your position of authority as the chief cupbearer um, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And lo and behold, that happens. Chief cupbearer gets out of jail. But before he leaves, Joseph says, hey, just don't forget about me. Okay? What happens? Cupbearer forgets about him. Years later, uh, Pharaoh then has a dream, um, a dream that disturbs him. And then the cupbearer is like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy that uh, interpreted my dream when I was in jail. So he tells him about him, Pharaoh summons him, uh, he interprets these two dreams, one of skinny calves eating, seven skinny calves eating seven fat calves, and then uh, seven um, uh, kernels of wheat that are, that are healthy eating seven kernels of wheat that um, are not healthy. And so he interprets that as being seven years of plenty for Egypt and seven years of famine are coming for Egypt first the plenty, then the famine, and he warns uh, Pharaoh to say, uh, this, is, this is what's going to happen, you need to be ready. Pharaoh likes that interpretation and says, hey, you know what, I like you, you're going to be my number two. In all the land, okay, in all of Egypt, you are going to be my number two from now on. So he goes from being in prison one day to being the number two of possibly the most powerful empire at the time. Um, and so that happens. He starts to 
manage Egypt through this, these years of prosperity, and um, then the famine hits. Famine hits not just Egypt, but surrounding lands, including Canaan, where Jacob and his brothers um, live. And so Jacob and his brothers come to Egypt to buy grain, okay, to buy food, because everywhere else is, is out. Um, when, before they leave, Jacob sends the ten brothers, but doesn't send Benjamin, because what happened was is Benjamin you know, is, you know, Jacob's still reeling from the loss of Joseph, and so he doesn't want to send Benjamin, um, the youngest. So they come they, to Egypt, and they meet face-to-face with Joseph. Face-to-face with Joseph, and they don't recognize him, but he obviously recognizes them. Um, he throws them in jail, um, accuses them of being spies, of all things, and then uh, a couple days later, he lets them go and says, one of you has to stay here to be a slave, the others of you, you can go back to your land, take your food, but uh, the next time you come back here, you have to bring your youngest brother. They leave, but before they leave, he puts their money back in their sacks, which is a little, uh, a little bit odd. But when they get back home, they tell Jacob what happened. Jacob is distraught because one of the brothers is still back in Egypt, and then they realize that they still got their money. So they are now kind of freaking out. Um, Eventually, the food runs out. They have to go back a second time to Egypt. They go back this, before they go back the second time, there's this argument between Jacob and the brothers because Joseph clearly said, this guy in authority clearly said, you have to bring your, second, or your youngest brother back next time you come here. Um, and so eventually, after some argument back and forth, uh, Benjamin goes. They go to Egypt. This time, he doesn't throw them in jail. He says, welcome. He actually throws a feast for them. Um, he sends them back along their way. Um, but before he sends them away, he does it again. He puts the money back in the sack. But then in addition to that, he takes this personal silver cup called the cup of divination and puts it in Benjamin's sack. They leave. Uh, he sends a messenger, accuses them of stealing. Um, they find the silver cup. And then they're all, they all come back to Egypt. And then they plead um, before Joseph. Um, they plead before Joseph um, basically to, to forgive them, and then this is the moment where Joseph cracks. He reveals his identity to the, um, to the brothers. Um, they hug, they embrace, and then there's this famous verse in Genesis 50, 20, um, which ends the story that says, you intended to harm me, but God in- intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Okay, so that is the story. That is the story. I realize that was a long story. Again, 13 chapters. I tried to do my best to consolidate it into about uh, 10 minutes. So um, there are a couple of points that I, that, that I want to look at today. Um, first, I, I want us to look at the redemption of Joseph and that trials are, are part of the plan. The trials are part of the plan. So as you notice that this is an epic story of redemption, very similar to Shawshank Redemption. It's an amazing journey that Joseph goes on. Uh, peak, valley, peak, Valley. His life is this proverbial roller coaster. And so um, he's wronged time and time again, right? He's sold into slavery. Um, he is uh, accused uh, of doing something that he didn't do, ends up in jail. And then um, finally, uh, the cupbearer forgets about him after he does, uh, after he prophesies a stream for him. So 22 years goes by, okay? 22 years from the date that uh, he gets sold into slavery and then he comes face to face with his brothers. 22 years goes by. Now think about that. Think about the 22 years that's going on in Joseph's mind and what he has been thinking about his brothers. 
22 years. Can you imagine the rage that is boiling inside of Joseph? Can you imagine how many times Joseph has played out in his mind, man, when I see these guys? (laughs) Can you imagine the emotion that is going through his heart after 22 years of suffering and trial? Okay? How does he not just crush them? How does he not, as a man in power that has essentially ultimate power at this point, how does he not just destroy these guys for what they did to him? Okay, so I want to look at two perspectives here, two possibilities of why he didn't do that. First is that he, um, you know, now his circumstances have drastically improved. So he went from being a slave, now he has grown and he has risen to the top of the the most powerful empire on the planet. Okay, so uh, there is a, uh, there is a, a modern prophet by the name of Drake, um, and he wrote a song that's called uh, Started from the Bottom, and Now We're Here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Is that the reason why Joseph is able to react the way that he does? That his external circumstances, right, his position, his power, his wealth, has now caused him uh, his emotions to be tempered. Is that what it is? Did money and success help heal Joseph's soul? That's one perspective. Another perspective is that, and and, and I hear this a lot, is that, you know, time heals all wounds. Time heals all wounds. So it's been 22 years since this happened. So is it just the matter of longevity? Is it just time that has caused him to kind of calm his heart and and, and move on from the betrayal that he had 22 years ago? Let's, let's take a second to think about that personally. Have you guys been wronged? Have you, has, have you ever been betrayed? Have you felt like somebody has ripped the rug out from under you? And process through your, you know, the emotions that you've gone through. Maybe you're still going through that right now. Um, maybe it's happened long ago. Um, but I, I, I'll share with you personally, I can, I, I can tell you that both of those just don't hold weight. Personally, though, those just don't hold weight for me because... Um, you know, money and success don't mend a broken heart. And I would say, if anything, it breeds resentment and entitlement. And as time goes by, it just continues to manifest, manifest itself in different ways. And it becomes more and more destructive. So um, in, in about 2009, 2010, um, I, 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 I quit my job to, to take another one. And, um, if, you know, for, for those who... Um, remember that time, it, it, was, it was a really, it was during the Great Recession, right? A historically bad downturn of the economy. And so I took this new job, and then shortly after I took this job, I got laid off. And, um, and, and I remember, you know, I was, I was you know, relatively young in my career, but still, it's, you know, kind of the first time that's, uh, first time that's happened to me. And, um, and man, I was mad. Man, I was, I was bitter. And, and, and I had such... You know, I had never felt that type of rejection, I think, uh, professionally. And so um, I can tell you that the next job that I found, you know, the assumption, right, is that as your external circumstance increase, you know, things will be okay. I can tell you that the next next job that I found, um, you know, even if it was better than my last job, it didn't help heal my soul. In fact, it just made me more entitled. It just made me more bitter towards that company, um, making them, you know, justifying to myself that, you know, they made a mistake and they shouldn't have let me go. 
and they shouldn't have done that to me. So my external circumstances improved, yet my heart was still messed up, still broken. And I can tell you that over the course of time, it didn't get any better. And the more, you know, any time that I heard that name of, the, of that company, any time that I drove by one of their stores, uh, it, it just irritated me. And every time that I heard that somebody from the company that was of value or somebody that was a key contributor left, I kind of smirked and I kind of laughed. And I took a twinge of pleasure in that. I, I, don't, I don't tell you that to, to be proud and tell you that that's what you should do because it's not. And, and, I, and I confess that to you today, and, I, and I've confessed that to God, but I, I, I give you that example more because I want you to see that what Joseph did and not exploding with rage and retribution towards his brothers in that moment after 22 years is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Okay? So that verse where Joseph says, what you meant for harm, God meant for good, um, I would contend that that is not a revelation that comes overnight, but it's something that happens step by step, day by day, week by week, in which he is submitting and he understands that God's plan is much bigger than his plan and God's story is much bigger than his story. So Pastor Chris uh, touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, the 30 years of wandering that Israel did in the wilderness um, shaped them as a nation to be God's chosen people and I imagine that it was the same for Joseph, that every year that went by, God was shaping him to show him how it's his story, God's story, above Joseph's story. Now let's take a look back um, at some of the things that Joseph endured, and let's look at it from a different angle and a different perspective to see how perhaps God was working, and these are not just all curses. So um, at first, in the beginning of the story, um, he gets sold into slavery, right? Injustice, that's bad. However, remember that initially the brothers just flat out wanted to kill him. So his life is spared and he becomes a slave instead of ending up dead at the bottom of a well. Second, he goes to Potiphar's house um, and then he is accused of, of making a pass at Potiphar's wife. Now, Potiphar is a military guy. Potiphar is a man of power. And in those times, slave are property. So what would prevent Potiphar from just putting a spear straight through a man's chest who went and hit on his wife? Nothing. Yet, Potiphar decides to spare him and throw him in jail. So instead of death, so that's twice now, he has evaded death and he has been spared. Seemingly curses, but, in, but when you look at it in hindsight, could have been much worse. The next thing that we can look at is the fact that of all the people that he meets in prison, he meets the cupbearer. Okay, so what the heck is a cupbearer? Because I'm pretty sure nobody in this room has a cupbearer. Uh, the cupbearer is somebody that uh, tastes food and drink for somebody that, for a person in power to make sure that they're not poisoned. Okay, so three times a day, the cupbearer is uh, you know, sees this person that they're assigned to, and the chief cupbearer sees Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, possibly the most powerful man on the earth, three times a day. Three times a day. Three times a day he sees this man, the most powerful man on the planet. Three times a day, that's more than I see my wife, that's more than I see my kids um, a lot of weeks. 
Imagine that. Imagine that in today's world, that you knew somebody that saw the President of the United States three times a day. Imagine how crazy of a coincidence that would be. Yet that's what happens to Joseph when he's in prison. Okay, so again, look at this from a different perspective. That while it seems to be a curse, God is using these small things to work a plan of redemption. And last, the dreams that are interpreted by Joseph to Pharaoh. Joseph interprets these dreams of seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. But now think of who you're talking to. Know your audience, right? Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, probably a prideful man, you're telling him that, hey, you're going to fail. Your country's going to go through a period of failure. I can tell you, people in power, CEOs, directors of whatever in, in the business world don't like to be told that they're going to fail. <laughs> Pharaoh, he's telling Pharaoh, hey, you're going to fail, and you need to be ready for this. Yet, Pharaoh is cool with that answer and rewards him for it. So you see all these failures and seeming curses that end up being ways that God is working and is blessing Joseph in an amazing, twisting plan. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, um, the prophet Isaiah says, for my, he's, he's speaking of God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. You see, Joseph was being redeemed over the course of those 22 years. Ups and downs, but again, God is with him every step of the way. And instead of seeing an opportunity for revenge and recompense when he comes face to face with his brothers, he's able to see it as a moment of rejoice and a moment of opportunity for redemption for his brothers, which is now the next point. The next point um, I want us to look at is the redemption of the brothers and the transformation of a sinner. So going back to the story, Joseph acts like he doesn't know the brothers when he sees them. Um, he first calls them spies, um, forces them to leave one of the brothers, tells them to bring back the youngest brother, and in the meantime, he puts money back in their sacks. Um, they're scared, um, to how the brother or the, the, the father, Jacob, might react. They come back. He does the same thing again, puts money in their sack, and then puts a silver cup into Benjamin's sack so he can be framed um, and, and imprisoned. And so what's the deal with that? What's the deal with that? Why, well, why is he doing this? Okay. Is Joseph just trolling his brothers? Joseph just trolling his brothers? So anybody that, uh, if, if you were born before 1994, perhaps you don't know what that term means, and I'll explain. So trolling means you're kind of messing with them. You're trying to get a rise out of them. You are, um, you're playing games with them, okay? Um, my, uh, my, my, my daughter, Grace, um, she, what we've discovered lately is that she has a very great gift of being able to troll us. So what she'll do is... Um, yeah, I'll tell her something like she's like got a, something on her finger, and I'm like, Grace, don't put your hand in your mouth, it's dirty. And then she looks at me and she goes, what? And then I repeat myself, and then she looks at me and goes, what? And then she does this about four or five times, and she knows exactly what I said. She can comprehend. Um, and so then I say it four or five times. I try not to let her get a rise out of me, and then she goes, 
Like this? Like this? Like this? Like this? And I say, no, Chris, don't put it in your mouth. Like this? So this is what trolling is. Okay, so if anything, if anything we learned today, the older folks, that's what trolling is. Um, but is this what Joseph is doing? Is he just trolling his brothers? Um, he's not. He's not. Okay. Um, what Joseph is doing is he is testing his brothers in a way that is specific to things that have happened in the past uh, to see whether or not they're changed men. So first, he calls them spies. Why does he call them spies of all things? Right? He could have called them all kinds of things. He could have called them jerks. He could have called them mean people. He could have called them traitors. He called them spies. Now, if you guys have watched enough movies, how do people usually respond when they're called a spy and they're not a spy? They spill their guts, okay? They tell you all kinds of extraneous personal information that people normally wouldn't share. They're like, I'm not a spy. My mom's name is Jane, and I've got a younger brother named Joseph, and and our dog's name is Jackson, and and in third grade, you know, I, I stole marbles from my best friend. They tell you all kinds of crazy things when people are wrongly accused, and they're called spies. And so that's kind of what happens with Joseph's brothers. He calls them spies, and then they start spilling their guts. They're like, no, you know, your, our father is your servant. His name is Jacob. You know, we have 10 brothers. But then they mention, we have a younger brother that's at home, and we have another brother that is no more. Why mention that? Why mention that? Why mention Joseph, of all people? Because I think... What it showed Joseph in that moment is that the brothers didn't forget about Joseph. And that was something that was still on their hearts. And later on in that conversation, again, because they don't know that Joseph is standing right in front of them, they start to talk about, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. He's calling us spies. We're going to jail because of what we did to Joseph. And you can see that there is now this regret and this remorse in the hearts of the brothers. Joseph sees this. Okay, so this is test number one. Test number two Remember that Joseph's brothers sold them for 20 shekels of silver, okay? So clearly, um, when they did this, they could have just killed him, okay? But they wanted to make some money off him. Why kill the guy when you can make some money off him, right? So fast forward to this meeting. Fast forward to when they come face to face. He sends them away, and what does he do? He puts the money back in their sacks. Why does he do that? Because he wants to see what they're going to do. He wants to see what they're going to do with that money. Are they going to return it? Are they going to come forward and are they going to fess up to it? Or is the love of money still an idol in their hearts and thus, you know, are they just going to pocket it? What happens? They come clean. The next time they return to Egypt, they fess up to it and they say, there must have been a mistake. You gave us the money back. We're going to double up what we gave from last time. We're going to give you what, you what we came to buy plus what we owed from last time. Joseph actually gives the money back to him and says, you know, that was a miracle. Don't sweat it. So that's test number two, the test of money. The last test is the one that's most crucial, okay, and it leads to the climax of the story. So uh, the brothers despise Joseph, okay, because he was the favorite, right? He was, Joseph, he was Jacob's favorite, and so they hate Joseph for that. So what does Joseph do to test him? Joseph asks them to bring back Benjamin. Bring back the youngest brother. Okay? Now we have to dig into the details of the characters and empathize with what, with, with what has happened to this point. 
Okay, so Joseph in Jacob's mind, the father's mind, has died, has been destroyed by some wild animal, and they bring back this, uh, this, cloak, this coat of many colors covered in blood. So he thinks one of his sons is already dead. Okay, and then, um, so after that happens, what do you think happens to Jacob? Okay, put yourself in the shoes of Jacob for a second. What would you do? Your favorite child was just mauled, maimed, murdered, and then, how would you react to the other son? You see, Benjamin is also the son of Rachel, okay? And Rachel was the woman that Jacob truly loved, the one that he wanted to marry the entire time. And so Joseph and Benjamin are both the sons of Rachel, and the other brothers are not, okay? So Joseph is a favorite. Benjamin is next. So what happens here? I would imagine that Jacob goes even more overboard, more neurotic, more favoritism <laughs> towards Benjamin because he doesn't know that what, that's what led to the demise of, of, of Joseph. So think about that. Joseph had a coat of many colors. I would imagine that Benjamin not only got a coat of many colors, he probably got pants of many colors, he probably got shoes of many colors, he probably got a fedora of many colors, a cane of many colors, Maybe he had a house or a tent of many colors. You know, when they're sitting around and eating breakfast in the morning, he got the cereal of many colors, Fruity Pebbles, which is the greatest cereal of all time, we all know. While the brothers are probably eating shredded mini-wheats without frosting. No frosting. I don't know why anybody makes that cereal. It's disgusting. Um, but they're eating plain cereal, garbage, and Joseph's eating... Fruity pebbles. Okay. So, again, getting back to the point, why is this a test? Why is this a test? Um, so in... This is a test because Joseph is trying to see how they're going to react when he asks for Benjamin to be brought to Egypt and how they're going to react towards Benjamin. If they acted anything like they did 22 years ago, like they did towards Joseph, they'd be like, yeah, okay, we'll bring that guy. Put him right before you. We'll probably frame him ourselves. But they don't. In chapter 43, verse 9, one of the brothers says, he says to, uh, he's talking to Jacob while they're having this exchange before they go back to Egypt for the second time. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. So what he's saying is, I will protect Benjamin with my life. And if Benjamin is harmed, my life for his life. That's what one of the brothers says. Wow. The story continues. They go to Egypt. Um, and then the incident with the silver cup happens. Um, they come back, they're, they're brought back to Egypt, right? And in chapter 44, verse 12 and 13, the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and the youngest, ended with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they loaded all their donkeys and returned to the city. So not just one tore their clothes. They all tore their clothes, and then they all returned to the city. This is no longer the sentiment of one or a few, but this is the sentiment of all. When they arrive, 
the same brother that made that pledge to Jacob makes this plea at the, at the end of chapter 44. So, and he's talking to Joseph. He says, so now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servant, meaning the brothers, your servants, meaning the brothers, will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Now then, please, let your servant, meaning himself, remain here as the Lord's slave in place of the boy, Benjamin, and let the boy re return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Do you see what's just happened? Do you see what just happened? Murderous, jealous, hate-filled brothers are now laying down their lives for someone that years ago they didn't think twice about killing. They didn't think twice about exchanging a life for 20 pieces of silver, which in today's world is about $400. See, God changed their ice-cold hearts ice-cold hearts of stone to ones of regret, repentance, and sacrifice. Do you see the amazing power of God and how he can change any heart, any life in this world? We have people in our lives like that, right? People that we think that are so far off that there is, that there is no hope. There is no hope for these people. You know, whether it be the coworker that we think is backstabbing and somebody that is dishonest, whether we think that it's a parent that's abusive, whether you think that it's a spouse that's unfaithful, we see these people and we think that, they, that there is not a chance in the world for that person. But the story of Joseph, the redemption of the brothers is showing us there is a chance, that there is a chance and that there is a hope for these people. And that these people are just as much a part of the story as Joseph is. Just as much of a, party, a part of the story as Joseph is. There's a, there's a song from 2004 that, um, it's, it's, it's by Kanye West. In one of the verses it says that uh, for the hustlers, the killers, the murderers, the drug dealers, even the strippers, that Jesus walks for them. And that's what, that, that's what the story is saying right now. So do you believe that? Do you believe that today, church? Before I go into the next point, I, 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 want, I want to give us a, a quick word of caution. Um, and it'll lead into the, to the last point, which is um, there's this common misconception and this temptation that, um, that we like to project ourselves into the main character of stories when we hear them, whether biblical or not. We, we like to project ourselves as being the main character in these things. So um, what the story of Joseph can become, if we're not careful, is this story of success, this feel-good story, right? This started from the bottom, now we're here story. So we project ourselves into the middle of that, and we say, okay, so God, I'm going through this trial right now. I'm having a hard time. There are these you know, treacherous people around me, but one day, God, I know that you're going to elevate me. I'm going to rise to the top and they will bow down and worship me. Hopefully you don't think that far, but you think that you're going to be elevated to the point above these other people in your life. Um, can, I, can, I, can I guard us 
or can I, can, I, can I ask you to guard yourselves from that temptation and not to see the story from that lens, um, which leads to my last point, that the redemption of the world, the redemption of the world, and that true hope is not in people, um, but it is in a person. It's in a person. Okay. So if our focus is on Joseph in this story, we miss the point. We miss the point. Yeah, Joseph's a great character. Yeah, he, he, he knows how to forgive. Yeah, his heart was redeemed. Um, and he is the gold standard, right, maybe? We may be thinking as we read the story. But what happens when, if we project ourselves into the story, and these things don't happen to us? What if it doesn't work out for us? What if we are not elevated in the end? What if we don't see the wrongs being made right in our life. Um, I think it's pretty obvious, right, that we see this all the time in our world, that the wrongs are not always made right. And sometimes it feels like there isn't a whole lot of hope. So what do we do in that scenario? What do you do when you feel like there is no hope? What we, what we need to remember this morning is that one of the brothers whose hearts was changed, whose heart was changed, his name was Judah. Okay? So Judah is the one who steps forward to proclaim the protection over Benjamin to his father Jacob. Judah is the one who throws himself in between an authority figure in Egypt and Benjamin when he's threatened with imprisonment. It's Judah. It's Judah that we also need to focus on this morning. And why is that significant? It's because the 12 brothers, today when we look back at them, we recognize them as the 12 tribes of Judah that make up the nation of Israel. And when you look at the line of Judah, when you look at the family of Judah, it's made up of the worst of sinners. It's made up of the broken. It's made up of liars outcasts, of prostitutes and thieves, incestuous relationships. That's what the tribe of Judah is made up of. But one of the descendants would be called the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, which today we know to be Jesus Christ. Okay. Revelation 5.5 you know, the, the author is seeing a vision and he's describing, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. This is where our hope is today, friends. It's in the lion of Judah. Without Judah, see, this is just a feel-good story and it's an inspirational example to follow, but instead, this is a story of redemption and an amazing work that God can do where Judah threw down his life for the sake of Benjamin, saying, take me instead, take my life, my life for his. If only Judah knew that generations later, generations later, his descendant would do the same, and that Jesus would come, a descendant of Judah, and do the same not just for one, not just for a brother, but he would do it for the entire world, the entire world that is not deserving. Judah deserved his punishment. Jesus did not Yet he sacrificed the way that he did so that you and I, all of us, can have hope in an entirely hopeless world. This is the ultimate redemption 
This is the ultimate redemption story. Better than Shawshank Redemption. Justice and mercy meet at the cross and give the world a chance of second hope. Church, we don't need more successful believers. We need believers that are more sacrificial. We don't need more PhDs or professional certifications. We don't need more six-figure salaries, GPAs. We don't need more social media followers. We don't need more people in these seats necessarily on Sunday, but we need people that are in these seats that are more sacrificial, that are willing to give up the plans of their life for the sake of another. That's what we need. We don't need more Josephs, friends. We need more Judas. And how do we, need, how do we get more Judas? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. We don't need more Josephs, friends. We need more Judas. And the only way we get more Judas is through the power of Christ. And through his sacrifice, lives are changed. I'll close our time um, today with, uh, with one last illustration, and, and it goes back to the movie Shawshank Redemption. So the, the story ends with Andy escaping from prison, um, as I mentioned before, but also Red, his friend, his dear friend, Morgan Freeman, is released from prison as well, um, after he gives this epic monologue um, about uh, what it means to be rehabilitated. And so after 40 years, 40 years, Red is released from prison. Red comes out of prison and he quickly realizes that there isn't a whole lot of hope for, for him. A lot has changed in the world, right, over the course of 40 years. 40 years you're in prison, you come out, now all of a sudden there are cars all over the place. Um, probably telephones weren't even um, around back then. And so, you know, he finds a job, tries to make a living, but in the end, he wonders whether or not there is a place for him in this world. And, um, and you know, at a certain point, he, he becomes hopeless and contemplates suicide. But then he receives, he remembers a message and receives a letter from his friend Andy, his dear friend Andy. And, he, and in this letter, he, um, he gives him instruction on where to go, to, to, to find him, to be reunited, and to try to start this new life um, after prison. And um, at the end of this letter, he says, he says this, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best thing, and a good thing never dies. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, Maybe the best thing. And a good thing never dies. This iconic quote from the movie talks about hope. And thankfully for us, friends, hope is not just a word today, but hope is, it has a name. In the name of Jesus. Indeed, hope, or excuse me, a, a good thing never dies. And God overcame Jesus overcame the ultimate trial of death so that the world can have hope even after death. The good thing never dies. Jesus overcame. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the best news. And the best news never dies, friends. So let's take a minute to reflect on this. You know, I think um, redemption, this idea of redemption, 
is something that if not checked, it can get out of control. You know, have we sometimes, have we ever wanted to see the rights, excuse me, the wrongs made right, but not see somebody redeemed? And not want to see the hope shown into a dark place because you wanted to see people punished, because you wanted to see the wrongdoers come to justice. Yeah, that's one temptation. Another temptation is that we we project ourselves in the center of these stories and that our faith becomes something that's just about us getting our way or us somehow uh, being vindicated in the end. But what this is, but, but what t- today the reminder is, is that that's not the point. The point is, is that it's God's will above ours and that Jesus, he surrendered himself so that the will of the Father would be done showing us the way to submit to that. So let's take a minute um, to confess maybe some of those situations, but ultimately to lay it before God, to lay our lives before the cross and lay all of our, all of our plans and all of our dreams to say, Lord, it's yours. And Lord, you know better than I do. So would you make what you will of us? Let's take a minute to do that and then I'll, and then I'll, uh, I'll lead us in prayer. Thank you for this epic story of redemption. Thank you, God, that the, that the worst of people in our lives, the people that, God, we feel like there's no hope for, that there is hope. There is hope. Lord, that we don't have to rely on our own perfection and our own doing, Lord, so that there could be hope. But God, that hope came down and rescued us. That the humble king laid down all that he had so that we could share in that inheritance. That redemption and hope could be made true through the cross. We give it all to you, God. Give it all to you today. Lord, help us to see the world the way that you see it. Help us, God, to have faith when the plan doesn't seem to be going well. And Lord, it seems like the world's stacked against us. But God, with confidence, Lord, we submit to you.